Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, that's humbling. Um, it's been a privilege to be a part of this church for almost 19 years now. Um, as a member of the congregation, as a missionary sent out, and now as one of the pastoral staff. So I appreciate it. Um, I know Jason appreciates it as well. Thank you, guys. So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning. We're going to continue in the series that Jason, Pastor Jason has led us through over the last few weeks. Now, I wanted to just open by saying that about a year ago, uh, my wife and I were, were able to purchase a home. And we never thought we would be homeowners, just the, the life God had called us to, but we've been able to settle down here in Evergreen, and God provided us with a wonderful place to live. But the thing is, when we moved into our house, we had a lot of work to do on that house. In fact, the front entrance, the front door to the house was about six feet from the ground, and we had no steps or deck to get up to the house. The previous homeowner had torn that down and not replaced it, and so we had some work to do just to get into the house. We had to replace tile, uh, flooring, rip up all the old carpet, carpet in the bathrooms that had been there for 30 years that needed to be ripped up. Um, All kinds of work needed to be done on this house. The one that got me the most, though, and we we had a, a ton of help, a lot of people kind of pitching in and helping us with that project, but the painting was the thing that got me. We had to repaint every wall and ceiling in that house. Now, when I begin a painting project, I can usually start pretty strong, okay? All the corners, edges, everything looked very good. Clean, pristine, everything was correct. But as the the days wore on, as the weeks wore on, I began to lose a little bit of focus. By the time I got to that very last wall, I was ready to basically just take the can of paint and chuck it against the wall and hope that some of it would stick. And that's where I greatly benefit from somebody coming alongside of me and encouraging me to finish strong, to keep up the work. My wife was great at that, picking up a paintbrush and helping me and encouraging me, let's, let's finish this project. Painting is tedious work, and I'm sure you can all think of projects in your life that, are just, that feel that way, right? Things you just don't want to do, things that are hard to finish. But the idea here is is finishing strong. I I realize that's just an example in life, but you see, we need the same kind of encouragement in our faith. How often do we start strong, but then we end up distracted or discouraged or simply tired? Maybe you you get up in the morning and, and you're starting strong in the Word. You're in the Word, you're in prayer, everything's going well, but then as the day wears on, You get distracted. Things come up at work. Maybe an argument with a spouse. Maybe issues with your kids at school or whatever. You get distracted. How often does that happen in life? We start the Christian journey strong. Maybe you can think back to that time you gave your life to Christ. You accepted Jesus Christ into your life. He transformed you. He began to work in you. And you were maybe on fire for a while. But then as the years wear on, We can lose focus, right? How do we stay strong? How often do we lose sight of the vision God has given us for our faith and for our life of discipleship? How often do we succumb to anxiety? 
or to lies or to doubts that keep us from the God who loves us. See, as we labor for the kingdom, as we plod along in the challenging times, our God reminds us to finish strong, to stay focused. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 4, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to, uh, to the Corinthian church. He's, he's speaking for himself and the other apostles, and he says, We were afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Finish strong. So as we turn to Nehemiah chapter 6 today, I want to ask you to pay very close attention to how God leads Nehemiah to persevere in his calling and in his faithfulness to God in spite of his enemies, trying to sow deception and doubts and fears. See, the book of Nehemiah is about God's faithfulness to his people in their obedience to him for the accomplishment of his purposes. So let's go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning. I want to read from verse 1 through the first four verses of chapter 7. So it's a lengthy passage, but it tells of the opposition that Nehemiah faced. Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hekephirim in the plain of Anno. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalat for the fifth time sent his servants to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem the Arab says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O oh my God, 
according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehoahan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Now they spoke of his good deeds, uh, sorry, uh, now they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Lord, I, I pray, strengthen my hand this morning to faithfully preach your word. Lord, would you grant that the preaching of this word would generate faith in those who have ears to hear, that it would sanctify your people. Would you build us up and encourage us, Lord, through what we hear this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, can I suggest, first off, that the weight of this narrative passage really hinges on verse 15. Pay attention to those words. So the wall was finished. So the wall was finished. Now understand that um, Nehemiah here is, is finishing strong. In spite of his enemies' attempts to sow distraction and doubts and fear, he finishes strong. Now the book of Nehemiah is about building a wall. I mean, if you followed the story, this is about Nehemiah building the wall of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah is not just, not only about building a wall. This book is actually a statement about God. It's about who God is. It's about God's relationship with his covenant people. Because the wall here represents something. And we need to pay very close attention to what's going on here in the text. This is about the wall of Jerusalem. Now, what did Jerusalem represent to the people at the time? Think about this. Jerusalem was the capital city of the nation of Israel. This was the very heart of the promised land, the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. This is the city of kings, where King David had his palace, where, where King Solomon dwelt. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This is where the temple of the Lord had been built. This is where God himself would reveal his glory to his people. This is the city that, ironically, would both 
gladly welcome their Messiah one day and brutally crucify him as well. So when we read about Jerusalem, you have to understand the concept of Jerusalem means something significant to the people here. Understand, Nehemiah didn't go to Judea to rebuild the walls of Hebron. He didn't go to Judea to rebuild the walls of Bethel, and certainly not Jericho. He's here for Jerusalem, because Jerusalem represented the very presence and promises of God on earth. So if you were an enemy of the God of Israel, you would be equally opposed to the success of the city of Jerusalem. Think about it in today's terms. Let's put this in the 21st century for a minute. If you are an enemy of God, you want to see faithful local congregations closing their doors, right? You want to see pastors teaching weak, watered-down doctrine. You want to see internal fighting, strife, conflict in the church. You want to see a lack of missional focus, a lack of sanctification within the people. You want to see leadership caving to sin and to the whims of the world. That's what it would look like today. The enemies of God are enemies of Israel, of his people. The wall was finished. This is not just a statement about Nehemiah's extraordinary leadership qualities, finishing the wall in 52 days. This is not just a statement about the industriousness of the people. I want you to understand here that Nehemiah's construction project is a theological statement, okay? He's saying something here about God. And it may not even be a stretch to suggest that this itself is an act of worship, a proclamation of the goodness and the faithfulness of God to his covenant people, Israel. So as Nehemiah makes this statement about God through his work, he's going to meet a diverse group of of people, opposition to his work, to his ministry, you could say. And this is not the first time we've, we've met these, these people, these opponents of, of Nehemiah. Uh, these names have come up before. You're, you're familiar by now with names like, like Tobiah and Geshem. So let's go back to, to verse 1. I, I want to just work our way through the passage briefly and show you where the opposition is, is coming from, who these guys are. So verse 1 of chapter 6 speaks of Sambalat. Okay, again, like I said, this is not the first time we've met him. Um, Sambalat would have been the governor of the territory just north of Jerusalem, north of Judea. Okay? He's the governor of Samaria. Now, understand that the Samarian people at the time were a mix of a Jewish remnant from Israel that had remained in the land after the Assyrians had invaded. And then the Assyrians had actually brought in other Middle Eastern peoples into that territory and mixed the population. So we're actually not really sure who Sambalat is, what his connection might be to Israel or to the Jewish people. But we know he's the governor of Samaria. Extra-biblical accounts speak of him as well, as governor of this, of this territory. And we know he's, he's opposed to Nehemiah. He's opposed to the Jews and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So we have an enemy to the north, and then the next person mentioned in verse 1 is Tobiah. Now, Tobiah is the governor appointed by the king of Persia of the territory east of Jerusalem, east of the Jordan River in Ammon. So, modern-day Jordan, maybe Syria, that, that, that territory. 
And Tobiah, his name actually means Yahweh is good. He has a Hebrew name. So he, he may have some connection to the Jews. In fact, we read later on that he has some relations to, to, to the people of, of, of Jerusalem through marriage. There's a, there's a connection there. We don't know much else about him, but we know that he also is hostile toward Nehemiah in this, this construction project. Then we have Geshem the Arab. And Geshem is the governor appointed by the king of Persia of the territory south of Jerusalem, south of Judea. So the Arabian Peninsula, parts of North Africa. In fact, there are also historic records that corroborate this account in Nehemiah that speak of him as governor over this territory to the south. So understand, Israel is surrounded. Jerusalem is surrounded. The north, the east, the south, of course, the Mediterranean Sea on the west. They're, they're kind of hedged in. But it gets worse, okay? Because if we keep reading, you go to verse 10, you'll find that they're enemies of Israel within the people themselves. Shemaiah is mentioned in verse 10. And Shemaiah is a Jew, a resident of Jerusalem, possibly even connected in some way to the priesthood because of the account that we read. He's trying to get Nehemiah to enter the temple, to go with him into, into the temple. So he, he may have been a priest, now understand that the plot of Sambalad and Tobiah and Geshem in verses 1 through 9 is pretty straightforward. Nehemiah already knows that they're against him. They're trying to draw him out with these threatening letters, trying to get him to come out and meet them out on this plane in this neutral location. It's, it's political. Maybe they're, they're using this guise of friendship or, or, or diplomacy or whatever, but they're trying to entice him away from the work. And you see Nehemiah's response, I've got important work to do here. I don't have time for this. So he continues. So now the plot takes a little bit of a twist because now they're working with somebody within the people of God, within the people of, of Jerusalem to work against uh, Nehemiah. So this, this, this man, this, this possible priest comes to Nehemiah and, and tries to get him to enter the temple. Run for your life. They're coming to kill you. They're coming by night to kill you. Let's go into the temple where it's safe. Now understand what's going on here. In, in Levitical law, in Jewish law, if you had committed a crime, particularly a crime like involuntary manslaughter, you're in a bar fight, somebody gets a bottle broken over their head, they die, you flee to the temple. That, that's the idea. Because that way you're, you're being protected from the vengeance of the family. They cannot exact vengeance against you because you've gone into the temple and basically said, I am guilty, I've done something, but I want to stand trial. Protect me. So by getting Nehemiah to enter the temple, basically the idea is you're getting him to confess that he's, he's committed a crime, for one. But secondly, notice that this man is trying to entice him to actually enter the temple itself. Now, you could go into the temple courts, but only a priest could enter the actual temple. So there's kind of two things going on here, trying to get him to confess that, that he has committed a crime, but also trying to get him to sin against God. They're trying to, to ruin him. You see. But Nehemiah's list of enemies doesn't even stop there. If we continue to read verse 14, Nehemiah prays that God would, would, would have justice toward, toward these people that have, have tried to harm him. He mentions Noadia, a false prophetess, and several other prophets who have tried to pronounce prophecies against him, trying to, trying to ruin him again. And then if you continue reading toward the very end of chapter 6, we're introduced to several notable families and influential residents of Jerusalem who are corresponding with Nehemiah's enemies and using their influence once again to deter him. 
See, the battle is being fought on every side, internally, externally. It seems like everyone is against Nehemiah. Now, what does this tell us? What does this mean for us today? It means that those who do the work of God, who are faithful to God, will oftentimes meet persecution, challenges, difficulties, and those things will come often from the outside, but also from the inside. Think of it again in today's terms. Let's put this in the 21st century. He's faithfully ministering to his community, doing the work of God in obedience, and maybe he's gotten the attention of some very outspoken city council members who don't like what he's doing. Maybe the county is trying to shut him down. Now, these may be kind of extreme examples, but think of it that way. He's being trolled on on social media, on Facebook, on, on Twitter, that sort of thing. Maybe somebody's been throwing dead animals in his yard at night to scare him or that sort of thing. Amazon is refusing to sell his his latest book, right? People in his church, maybe his own pastor, leaders around him are telling him he's got to turn down his message a little bit. He's going to get the attention of the wrong people. Stop talking about sin. Stop talking about repentance. Stop talking about the gospel, Stop taking the Bible so seriously and treating it like some infallible, inerrant word of God. Just focus on, the, on a couple key points. Forget the rest of it. You see what's going on? When we remain faithful to the work of God and the truth of God is revealed in the word of God, we will face opposition. We know that. So where does spiritual opposition come from? Where is the enemy? I think a careful reading of Nehemiah chapter 6 shows us that the enemy comes both from within and without. I was reading a fascinating book recently on the Battle of Thermopylae. I don't know if you're familiar with that that chapter in, in, in history, but where these 300 Spartans and their squires and a few other Greek soldiers stood against over 100,000 Persians in this invasion of Greece. They were kind of situated between this rock face, the cliffs, the mountains, and they had the sea on the other side, and they were wedged in there, and this huge army of Persians was coming against them. But what's fascinating, if you really look into the history, the battle was being fought really on both sides. Now, in front of them was this massive army, and it was, it was amazing that the Greeks were doing a pretty good job. Um, they had perfected war. These guys were hardened, seasoned warriors. It was a massacre. The, the Persians were being slaughtered, dozens and dozens of Persians for every Greek that died. It looked like they might hold the Persians off. But there were things going on in the background as well, politically, that were subverting the, the work of, of this Greek army. Deception, political betrayal. You might remember the story, a traitor actually led the Persian army up around through the mountain pass and was able to surround the Greeks. That's what did them in eventually. So look at Nehemiah 6 carefully. That's exactly what's going on here. The same kind of thing. See, here's my concern. If we assume that the enemy is solely confined to those outside the community of the people of God, this will give us a false sense of security within the church. 
It will even blind us to our own sin. We talked about this last week, right? The idea is it's dangerous out there, but we're safe in here. As long as we stay in here, as long as we identify and label the ideologies and the worldviews and the philosophies and the religions that threaten Christian belief and practice, we'll be okay. Now, there's a lot of truth in that, but it's not the whole story. On the other hand, to assume that the enemy lies solely within the community of the people of God will give us an incomplete view of the church and of God's sanctifying work within his people. God loves his church. He's at work in his church. We shouldn't assume that it's, it's dangerous in here, that we're the sole problem. Again, there's some truth to that, but it's not the whole story. I, I think that's just moving too fast. See, look at what Nehemiah is facing. The Bible tells us that attacks on our faith and our mission come from within. They come from without. They come from the within being influenced by the without and by the without conspiring with the within and so forth. You see, the fruit of spiritual death is cultivated by the world and the flesh and the devil. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, for example. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, the flesh, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in those who are disobedient, the devil. These are the things working against us to tear down the church, to destroy God's people. You see, sin is like a pernicious mold that gets into everything even after the devil was defeated and dethroned by Christ at the cross, he still bites, he still barks, he still fights. Even though we have been declared righteous by faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross, our sin condition is still vying for influence in our lives, right? We wrestle that, we battle it every single day, temptation and sin, even though the world will one day be remade by the purifying power of the gospel, the world is still fighting for itself. Our own sin nature, our flesh makes us falter. The world calls us to abandon the faith. The devil seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, and yet God calls us to finish strong. Strengthen my hand, O Lord, to finish the race marked out for us. See, the opposition can be blatant or subtle. It can be fierce and sudden. It can be a gradual war of attrition. But there are a lot of forces that work against the church today. The world, the flesh, the devil come at us like Nehemiah's enemies. And the strategies to have us living in shame, living in guilt, living in fear, or conversely to have us walking in pride and spiritual arrogance. Oh, it's so easy to fall into this. We're either obsessed with thinking too little of ourselves or obsessed with thinking too highly of ourselves. Either way, we become self-obsessed rather than God-focused and Christ-centered. We either ignore what's going on in the world and let it slowly infiltrate our churches, or we focus so much on what's going on in the world that we fail to see our own sin. Let's not be naive. The world despises the church. The flesh despises God. The devil despises you. And again, that's where we need God to strengthen our hand. 
Strengthen my hand, O Lord. See, this entire section of Scripture we're examining today is an account of opposition to faithfulness. And if we turn anywhere other than to God, we will fail. We're doomed. Your resolve, your willpower, that's not going to save you. Your feelings, your hopes, your dreams are not going to get you across the finish line. Perseverance in the faith requires that we know who God is. Nehemiah's prayer in, in, in verse 9 is so valuable. Strengthen my hand. This only makes sense if God is who he says he is. Verse 15, so the wall was finished, only makes sense because Nehemiah's mission was rooted in the purposes of God as revealed by God for the glory of God. Finish strong. We will struggle our whole life against a diverse onslaught of temptations and behaviors and sin and weaknesses. But by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and his saving, restoring, purifying work of laying down his life in our place and taking our sin and giving us his righteousness, we have been equipped to finish strong. Jesus has gone before us to the cross. Do you remember his words? It is finished. It's finished. See, this entire passage in Nehemiah hinges on this, this idea The work was finished. The wall was finished. A testimony to God's faithfulness and his love for his people. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. Christian, you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You've been saved by God's grace through faith. You've been called to walk in faithful obedience. You've been given everything necessary and sufficient to finish strong, to finish the wall. I don't know if you've heard the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was uh, one of the church fathers, a bishop of the church of Smyrna. He was a disciple or follower of, of the apostle John. And we know Smyrna, you know the church of Smyrna from the book of Revelation in those opening chapters where John is writing to these churches and Smyrna was the church that was under heavy, heavy persecution, terrible persecution, people being put to death, put in prison. Polycarp was arrested at the age of 86 years old in his home. He refused to renounce Christ and bow to Caesar, that was his crime. Now, according to church tradition, he actually invited the soldiers who came to arrest him into his home. He fed them, gave them something to drink, told them to sit and rest while he prayed. Eventually, he was dragged away, put in the arena, and threatened with being burned at the stake if he did not renounce Christ. He was given one last opportunity to renounce Christ. And I love, I love his words. 86 years... Eighty-six years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He was subsequently burned and stabbed to death, and so the wall was finished. 
Maybe you've heard the account of John Calvin, the French reformer, author of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, pastor of the Église de Saint-Pierre in Geneva, responsible for reformation throughout France, throughout Switzerland, even on into other parts of the world. He influenced John Knox, who was the reformer in Scotland, the Presbyterian movement, all of that. John Calvin preached twice every Sunday. He preached every day of the week on alternate weeks. Thousands of sermons. Thousands of sermons. And at the end of his life, when he could no longer walk the couple hundred yards from his house to the church, he was carried in his chair. I got to actually see that chair in that church in Geneva. It's still sitting there. He was carried in his chair to preach. And when the doctors forbade him to go outside in the winter air to the lecture hall, to the church, his congregation flooded into his house and he continued to preach from his bed. And to those who urged him to rest to those final days of his life, he said, what, would you have the Lord return and find me idle when he comes? I love that. And so the wall was finished. Now, you've never heard the name Lucien Foucauchon. He was a member of our church over in Lyon, born in the early uh, 1920s, was captured by Germans in World War II, forced to go to Germany and work in one of the factories, munitions factory in Germany. An American bomb fell on that factory and killed two of his friends right in front of his eyes, severely wounded him. But he survived. He was eventually liberated. He made his way back to Lyon, got married, had a family. Two of his five children became professional pastors, church planters. They planted many churches around France. Several of his grandchildren became pastors and church planters. Dozens of churches have been planted. He used to sit in the front row of the church every, every Sunday, even in his 90s. One of the last interactions I had with him, he handed me a copy of a book of worship poetry he'd written over his lifetime. He died several weeks later, surrounded by generations of Christians he'd influenced. So the wall was finished. The wall was finished. Let me encourage you with this. We have a wall to build. We do. How do we do it? We do it by the power of God for the glory of God. We build on the foundation of Christ. We ask God to strengthen our hand to repent of sin and walk in righteousness, to strengthen our hand to not be distracted by ungodly desires and by the flesh and by the lies of the world. We ask God to strengthen our hand to love those around us sacrificially, even when they seem unlovable. We ask God to strengthen our hand. See, we need to pray this every day, Lord, strengthen my hand. We can't do this alone. Stay strong in the gospel that was preached to you, in the sound doctrine of the word of God, in the mission to which you've been called for the glory of God. Finish strong with that prayer. Lord, strengthen my hand.
Let's pray. Lord, you are still at work in us. Lord, building your church on the foundation that is Christ, purifying us of sin, equipping us with every good work, filling us with your spirit to finish the race. Each and every day, Lord, we need your help to finish strong. Lord, give us your grace to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to a time of communion. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet picked up the communion elements, there's a table in the back. Otherwise, you can come forward and pick up some elements here, which I'm going to do as well. So as we think about communion, the meaning of communion, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 26 and just read to you what it says As Jesus and his disciples were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, you know what happened at the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed three times, Lord, if it is your will, take this cup from me. But we know what he prayed next, not my will, but your will be done. He went to the cross on our behalf. He paid our debt of sin for us, gave his life for us that we might have life. And his words on the cross, do you remember? It is finished. There's nothing we can bring, nothing we can add to what Christ has done. It is finished. So as we take communion together, we are celebrating the finished work of Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished for us. So let's take communion together. Jesus said, this bread is my body broken for you. Then he took the cup and said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.